Today is October 23, 1989, and I am interviewing Trevor Tishner for the Oral History Project of the Missouri Historical Society. These tapes will play a part in the African American Music Exhibit in February 1990 and will also be a permanent part of the archives of this museum. Trevor J. Tishner is a historian of ragtime, the world's largest collection of ragtime piano rolls, and he teaches history, the history of ragtime at Washington U University in St. Louis. He plays the piano, composes rags, and performs with the St. Louis ragtimers. Oh, Trevor, we'll just begin at the beginning. Uh, I listed a few things on the introduction that you've done, but I know that there are a quantity of more. And instead of listing them, maybe we'll begin and ask where you were born, when you were born, and then work up to some of those things. Okay. Well, I'm from St. Louis. I was born here January 28, 1940, mm -hmm. and uh, raised in Sappington, which is in South County area. And uh, I had a musical mother. She took piano lessons. Uh, she was an accomplished pianist. and. Uh, played saxophone, had her own band, dance band in the early 30s, so I heard the music from when I was very small, and uh, that's one of the things that uh, got me interested in uh, popular music. And when did you take an instrument? Oh, I took uh, lessons starting about, I think I was age five. They started me with piano lessons, and uh, I had a very good uh, teacher, his name was John Gross, and he's still an active uh, musician in the area. Uh, he was, however, very straight, and uh, he didn't really like ragtime. Mm -hmm. uh, so I mean, straight classical, and uh, but he did help me a lot with uh, technique and so forth. When did the uh, when when did your interest in ragtime begin? How did it evolve? Uh, as near as I can remember, I was about 13 years old when I uh, heard the Maple Leaf Rag, and uh, that had such an effect on me. It 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 drove me to find out more about the music, and uh, this led me to collecting. And uh, during the 1950s, there was a revival of interest in um, ragtime of the sort of a popular variety, uh, what they used to call honky tonks. So there were records out in the 50s of commercial sort of ragtime style. Okay. And then I uh, then I heard the maple leaf and uh, I started to collect piano rolls and somebody gave me a record just by chance that had some of the more classic type of ragtime. Scott Joplin and other composers. And then I discovered the book they all played ragtime. One thing led to another. Mm -hmm. So that by the time I was a uh, I'd say about 1956 or 7, I was really hooked on ragtime. And so you were 16 or 17? 16 or 17, right. Did you sort of drop off with the other types of music? Pretty much. Uh, I had a very eclectic taste in the 50s buying records, but I, I seemed to gravitate towards syncopated instrumental music of various sorts. And um, I discovered finally that what I really was looking for was rag, instrumental ragtime. And how, how about your parents? Was this okay? Yeah, but they never expected me to follow it as a as a sort of a full-time thing, which I have. Which you have. Um, I was, uh, through school, I, I really didn't uh, take that many music courses. I, about this, the time I got into high school, I discovered I had a uh, great facility with foreign languages. So I, I took a lot of uh, fr French, Latin, German, and so forth, and uh, by the it, I finally came to a point where I had to decide whether I was going to follow this on into college, or and about that time I decided to stick with the music. And about that time I started to perform it. Performing. Yeah, about 1960. Uh, I'm. I'd like to list. Correct me if I'm <coughs> if I'm not have any of this uh, down right. Uh, as I mentioned, you wrote the book Rags and Ragtime. Uh, with David A. J Jan Jason. 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 Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you uh, play with the St. Louis Ragtime, which is a which is a quartet. It's a quintet. quintet. Originally, it was a quartet. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you began the Ragtime Review, which is the first modern-day journal dedicated to ragtime. Right, that was between, I think, 61 and 66. Okay, and you have, as I said, the largest private collection of ragtime piano rolls in the country. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a radio, do you still have a radio program? No, the radio show ended, I think, in 87. All right, it was called Ragafile. Ragafile. Okay, mm -hmm. the oldest show of its kind in the nation. Uh, you teach ragtime history at Washington U. Yes, and I do. And used to at St. Louis U, I believe. No, no. at WashU. Wash about 16 years now. Okay. You recorded two albums of piano solos? Uh, actually, three. Three, all right. Yeah. And uh, and I'd like to ask you a question. Is there anything you don't know or haven't done concerning ragtime or would like to do? Uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> The situation here is usually the phone will ring and somebody will call and uh, they need something for a project. It just happened about a half an hour ago. There's um, Bill Kenny who's working on the, the Smithsonian project there on James Scott's music, his classic ragtime writer. They need a copy of one of his tunes they're missing, so they called me to copy it and send it to him. That's kind of a nice feeling, isn't so it? So I really just kind of, it's, there's usually something going on or something yeah. happening and I one of the, the most important things that I think I was part of was in the 70s lending a lot of music for reprint. I, I edited two volumes for Dover, lent music for a lot of other projects, and this was the important thing to make the music available for pianists. Because when I started collecting and so forth, we had to do it just a step at a time and fine tunes. Uh, I remember when we tried to put all this, we did put all the tunes together for Naki Parker when he did the first set of Joplin rags on record, and it was quite a project to find them all. We had to contact all sorts of collectors across the country. Now you can just go into any bookstore and get the collected works of Scott Joplin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's thanks to you? Well, and not I'm not the only one, but you know, some of the collectors who came up about the same time I did, like Jason, we've uh, done a lot of projects like that. Uh, you're kind of a combination of the past, aren't you? You you compose, you play, mm -hmm. you have the magazine like the publisher. You well, we did. You um, did. We did. Yeah, I I contribute to other journals now. Mm -hmm. There are two main journals of Ragtime: the Ragtimes on out of uh, Los Angeles and the Ragtimer in mm -hmm. Canada. This question is a little ahead of, of what we're going to learn on the tape, but since we're talking about you, when you stop and think about the past and what you delve into, is there anybody that you would like to have been? Well, in the, ra in the ragtime mm -hmm. field, I've always been associated closely with Tom Turpin, and I've always had a special interest in him. Uh, because I think he was the true pioneer of ragtime in St. Louis. Sort of paved the way for Scott Joplin and others. And uh, uh, there's sort of physical resemblance too. He was a big man too. And uh, I sort of feel a close identification with Turpin and what he tried to do. He was very much a catalyst also in bringing ragtimers together at the Rosebud Bar. And uh, that's what I've always done. I've always had parties, in which the parties evolved into the Ragtime Festival on the Goldenrod, mm -hmm. which has been going on for 25 years. So I guess that's the one person I would think of. Okay. Um, would you give me your definition of ragtime? Uh, a good generic definition is uh, American popular music that's characterized by a continuously syncopated melodic line played against an even steady rhythm. Now in terms of the piano, and ragtime developed mainly as piano music, the right hand plays the syncopated melody against the even steady march rhythm. That's the essence of ragtime. Is it backwards from most music? Is that? Well, syn like syncopation it. is not new to music. I mean the old masters used it, but usually they used it for contrast or briefly as a, to set up a restlessness of uh, a type of spirit. But uh, ragtime was new because it was the only time, it was the first time of, uh, the syncopation was used in a continuous sense mm -hmm. against uh, the even steady rhythm. So you, what you've got is you've got two different things happening at the same time. The, the right hand in effect is dancing all around the, the even steady rhythm in the left hand. 
and it's it's a contrast, and it's that's really the essence of ragtime. Is which is which would you say was playing the melody? The right hand. The right hand. Yeah. It always seems to me like it's backwards. Well, the yeah, as as ragtime developed and the players uh, looked for new things to do with the left hand, sometimes there were little counter melodies in the, in the left hand and different left hand patterns, but they're uh, they're brief. And the, most of the uh, Syncopation is going on in the right hand. Uh, now, we, what about uh, that's ragtime? Mm -hmm. uh, classic rag. Okay, within the generic definition of of ragtime, we have the rag, which is a specific type of ragtime. It's a composition, uh, generally of three or four strains, each 16 measures in length. Each strain is a complete musical thought. And a rag will evolve as a, in a pattern of playing a strain and repeating it and moving on to the next. Mm -hmm. And the most frequently used strain that, that Joplin laid down for Maple Leaf rag was A-A-B-B-A-C-C-D-D. Uh, -A -A -D -D. In other words, the first strain played and repeated, second strain played and repeated, A strain returns. Then there's usually a key change to the subdominant at the C strain, the C strains played and repeated, D ending with the D, D uh, strain played and repeated. That was his frequently used pattern for classic ragtime. Um, before classic ragtime, there was a genre which I call folk ragtime, and this was an era in which style was paramount among the players, and there was no really set form. Each player or composer was going in his or her own direction. And Joplin came along and established order and sophistication oh. ragtime. And he, he uh, added form, form of the great, by virtue of Maple Leaf Rag, uh, not only the popularity of the tune, but by virtue of its perfection. It's just a beautiful composition. It's an ingenious composition. He took the best ideas from this idiosyncratic world of folk ragtime and just finally honed them into a masterpiece. And this was such a great tune that he really set the basis for a classic ragtime composition. Uh, is there a St. Louis rag or stamp or sound? Well, as far as early ragtime, I associate the Tom Turpin style. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that we have six, only six or seven tunes by Tom Turpin, but uh, there are other tunes, other composers who followed his style. You can hear it in other composers, most notably uh, Joe Jordan, who uh, was a Cincinnati composer who uh, came to St. Louis and was part of the Rosebud Bar group. And his style follows Tom very closely. So I really associate the early days, the early stages of St. Louis ragtime with the Tom Turpin tunes. Um, we hear of Joplin, we hear of Turpin. Um, there are a number of others that we'll get to. Joplin came from... Uh, he was born in Texarkana. Uh, went to Sedalia. He went to Sedalia, right. When he was, what he was, my question is, when he was uh, beginning in Sedalia, was Turpin doing the same thing here? Yeah. Was it simultaneously? It almost was. But Tom's listed in the directories here as a musician as early as 1891. Uh, the legend is that Joplin came through St. Louis sometime in the late 1880s and played at a, at a uh, legendary place we don't know much about called Silver Dollar, which was run by the Turpin brothers' father, John Turpin. Uh, we don't know much about that, it's just a legend. Uh, this was happening somewhat simultaneously. The Turpin style is a very... Uh, idiosyncratic style, it's, uh, it has a kind of a hectic urban flavor to it in contrast with a lot of the rags that came out of the uh, more rural areas of the country. I think it's more in tune. The Rosebud was a pretty wide open place and a, a very hectic tempo there. And, uh, ran 24 hours and players were coming and going and there was a lot of entertainment. And he had a very distinct style and personality. His music. What did the Rosebud talk about? The Rosebud. I mean, okay. what describe it? Okay, to go back, to go back to the beginning. Tom uh, Turpin opened his first place on Targee Street, 
which was a short street that ran right where Keele Auditorium sits now. And that Targi. And it was it was named after Tom Targi, who was the fireman who dynamited the row of buildings and saved St. Louis in the big fire in the dynamited the what? He dynamited a row of buildings. Oh, a row of buildings. That saved the city in the in the big levee fire mm -hmm. in the eighteen forties. Uh, I don't know if he would have been proud of what happened to his <laughs> his street, but his street became uh, a sporting district, one of the earliest ones. And Tom Torpen opened there sometime in the 1890s, and uh, in 1900 he opened the Rosebud at, at 22nd and Market Street, and this, this was the mecca for ragtime piano players. <coughs> uh, he had a piano, and the legend is he had it up on, on bricks, so you had to stand up to play it. And so if you weren't too good, somebody would just come and push you out of the way. <laughs> See? And the, um, the ads, there are ads for the Rosebud in a um, black St. Louis paper called the St. Louis Palladium. It's a black Republican newspaper. And Turpin, Turpins were avid Republicans. And they, they ran an ad in the newspaper. And it's advertised as 24 hours, open 24 hours. Day and night bartenders are listed. And uh, music, I think, was there fairly continuously. And this is where a lot of the players met and exchanged ideas. Now, Scott Joplin generally stayed out of the sporting life. Once he arrived in St. Louis, he uh, rented uh, the flat, which is now the Joplin House, and he was he stayed out of that life. But he and Turpin were very close friends because they had strong interest in the music. Why did he stay out of that life? Well, he um, that was the uh, that was a dead end for a lot of the ragtime piano players. Most of them died very young, including Louis Chavon, who's the most legendary of all players here in St. Louis. Why? Uh, there's overwhelming testimony that Chavon was the best player of them all, and even better than Turpin. Uh, he influenced Joplin. They wrote one rag together, and t but, but Chavon went to Chicago from here, as a lot of players did, especially after the World's Fair when activities died down, they went to Chicago. And Siobhan died there very, very young. I think it's something like 1908 or 9. Why did they go away from St. Louis then? Well, as Arthur Marshall said, their, uh, the ragtime activity uh, really uh, subsided after the World's Fair. It reached a peak at the World's Fair. Uh, here again, you have to understand that, that ragtime, the ragtime playing we're talking about was fairly much underground. I mean, the fair, the official music of the fair didn't really include ragtime, but the players were working all along the pike in the different entertainment areas. So you, if you knew where to find it, you could find it. This is 1904. Four, yeah. Did they have a contest? I think there was a... There is, there was a contest that Jelly Roll Morton talked about. I've never been able to find any documentation, but it was supposedly held somewhere on the fairgrounds in 1904. And a New Orleans pianist, I think, won. Mm -hmm. There was a there was a contest in February that year, which is documented in the St. Louis Palladium that Turpin held, and Siobhan was the winner in that one. That he, was February. He was called the King of Ragtime Players. Players. Mm -hmm. um, if if I were to ask you what the uh, what the importance of of the World's Fair was for Ragtime, what would you say? I'd say the, it was mainly important in that it brought a lot of musicians here to exchange ideas. That's really what the city fathers were afraid if they let ragtime in the door at the World's Fair as an official part of the fair, it would take over and, obs and obscure all the, all the classical music concerts. However, Sousa played cakewalks in his concerts, the popular cakewalks, so people did get to hear syncopation. It, are you inferring that the ragtime um was of the lower places. Ragtime always had a bad reputation because it was common knowledge that it it was uh, spawned in the sporting districts, which was true. Also, the, the early ragtime pioneers were uh, black musicians, and it was the only place they could they could work was the districts. There was no other place that they could really play. Well, that that leads me to to something that I've been wanting to examine with you. Um, Eileen Southern, in a book called... Oh yeah, Music of Black Americans? Yes, thank you. Um, wrote that 
of particular relevance here is the fact that black music maker, the black music maker developed a distinctive style of entertainment. Music fitted to his own personal needs and expressive of his own individuality. It was not intended to be heard or understood by whites. Ragtime was one of the earliest manifestations of this distinctive music. The other was blues. And then on another page, she said that uh, just when rag music, this music developed by black musicians for the entertainment of their own people, first emerged on the wider stage of, state, on the wider stage of American music was not known. Now, um, in your book, on page one, that leads you to believe that black music was yeah. written and made for black well, audiences. You okay. you write, write in two different places something that I seems to me not to match, and I I'm, right. I'm trying to learn. In an age of rigid racial divisions, ragtime appeared as a racially ambiguous commodity. His earliest composers had no common racial identity nor the desire to promote their, promote their music under an ethnic banner. On music caught caught on so quickly that um, some of the first arrangers who notated the music were white uh, Theodore Northrup and uh, Max Hoffman and it wasn't long I'd say by 1905 or 6 that ragtime was established as general generally America's popular music but I still think that most of the real pioneers of it uh, were black originally. the stride was an unusual situation in, in Harlem mm -hmm. that, that developed a very distinctive sound and style all its own. Mm -hmm. Now, um, where would you take this from here? Um, well, let's see. We talked about, uh, what well, do you want to talk some more about Scott Joplin? Yes. Okay. Uh, Joplin was in St. Louis until about 1907. Excuse me, wasn't his, uh, I have a little note here that said that uh, he, he evened out the lyrics and the piano and the melody, and that's what made him... Well, the... It became equal partners? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, let me let me try to remember. Uh, one of the um, one of the things that Joplin brought brought to the music was uh, more of a lyrical melodic emphasis. Uh, a lot of the, the early folk ragtime uh, it sounds like syncopations running wild. It's just like, almost like it's untamed. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joplin brought principles of European classical music and mixed it with the Afro-American folk backgrounds and created something very new, which uh, became known as the, the classic rag. It's a more sophisticated type of writing. And uh, Joplin's work became more and more uh, lyrical, more chromatic, uh, more emotionally complex as time went on. He seems to be in a class of his own. He was He's very much. separated himself. Right, and his contemporaries viewed him that way too. Mm -hmm. With respect, or with respect, mostly, yeah, because mm -hmm. he was known as the king of ragtime writers, and uh, you know Joplin's name on a rag would assure of success. Mm -hmm. 
uh, but you have all these early people who yeah, it's were, very, not, it's were, complicated. were a little bit more primitive and yeah. these a little bit more educated. And right, right. Joplin was a, uh, a great genius at composing. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, rags, marches, waltzes, anything he did was put together just in a beautiful fashion. And why did he come to St. Louis? Well, uh, basically he was following John Stark, his publisher. But Stark decided after publishing Maple Leaf, uh, Maple Leaf Rag uh, was not an overnight success. It took until 1909, I found out through a newspaper account, uh, 99 only a half million copies were sold. Sometime around 1915, the million mark was reached, but Maple Leaf was a foundation of the firm. In any case, Stark decided to try his luck in St. Louis, and I think Joplin followed naturally. Um. Was Stark as totally without prejudice when it came to uh, Joplin as it seems? Uh, well, uh, he yeah he was the a royalties and that was something wonderful. very very unique situation. Um, this is somewhat fresh in my mind since I just delivered a paper on Stark for the CMS or, and uh, uh, Sam Floyd's uh, black, music. black music research. Um, he was an amazing uh, publisher, and this 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 um, system with royalties was certainly very unique. When you tell somebody today that the contract was a one cent royalty, it doesn't sound like much. But at the time, the um, uh, these players were being exploited all the time, and they were selling tunes for ten, twenty-five dollars, and very often the tunes became very successful. Uh, did they end up to be friends, or was there still, at the time, did they? I think there out? was a there was a lot of tension in the relationship almost from the beginning because uh, we know that Joplin's ragtime dance uh, that was written sometime before 1900 because we know it was performed in Sedalia before it came to St. Louis. This was a longer work that required a few more pages of printing, and Stark was very reluctant, and he was finally talked into it. And for some reason, the tune, as published in 1902, did not sell well. And it was rearranged into a shorter work in 1906. Then there was, uh, in 1908, they really parted company because Stark said he couldn't pay royalties anymore. Oh. This is according to Joe Lamb, the, the ragtime, classic rag writer in New York. Uh, Joplin and Lamb were friends while Joplin was in New York. and. Um, that's what he, he tells us. So there was a split there, and I'm sure that Joplin had approached... Well, we know that he tried to get Stark to publish Guest of Honor, his first opera, and that Stark was reluctant. He didn't, he didn't or couldn't invest in it beyond the short form of the rag. Well, here, you mentioned 1908, and here's talking about his song, Sugar Cane. Yes. 1908. Mm -hmm. uh, if I read this correctly, um, John Stark objected to, this is from your book, objected to Joplin's reuse of the maple leaf rag uh, format as expressed in his personal ledger. These remarks were probably intended for, well, it's that it was a rehash. And right. it sounded, uh, after listening to your paper, that, that here was a little bit of a yeah. well, it, uh, problem. The thing is, though, that Joplin rewrote that uh, first strain of Maple Leaf many times. And in fact, Stark published some of them, the Cascades, mm -hmm. Leola, these are the A strain is a reworking of Maple Leaf. But I think this is more of a function of their, their problems at the time over royalties. Because mm -hmm. uh, Sugar Cane's a wonderful piece. I mean, it doesn't sound like a rehash at all. <laughs> so it just it ended? Yeah, it didn't end on a, uh, well, you know, the remarks after Joplin died, Stark went to the files and pulled out a tune that he named Reflection Rag Syncopated Musings. Mm -hmm. And he published it with a very brief line of uh, Scott Joplin is dead, a homeless itinerant, he left his mark on American music. And then you think he would say a little more than that. Mm -hmm. But I think by that, you know, by that, maybe as, as early as 1908, they really didn't see each other very much. Well, it poss was it possible that uh, Joplin's illness yeah, the, the thing we don't know about that illness is when he started to feel the effects, when, and when, you know, what time in his life he contracted the disease. It's mm -hmm. all, 
something we don't know. Um, he supposedly cut some piano rolls, which, which uh, you know, collectors like myself have, in 1916. And, uh, you know, to do that, you still have to know what you're doing. And uh, one of these rolls is, um, is, a, is a bad performance issued on it. It's, uh, that's, that's a big question that's really hard to trace when, um, when he felt the effects, when, when he had the disease. What kind of man was Joplin when he came to St. Louis? Um, from what we can gather of Joplin's personality, he was very soft-spoken. Mm -hmm. uh, he's described as having a magnetic personality. Um, Arthur Marshall said that he was very much a father figure among ragtime players in Sedalia. He was a little older than most of the other players. Right, he was born in, was his project. Right. See, in Joplin, that's one thing. Joplin has stronger ties with 19th century music. He was, he was older and got the basic old-time classic training. Um, he was born in 1868. Most of the first-generation ragtime writers were born in the 80s. He was a little older. He's, he's remembered as an immaculate dresser. Uh, and as, uh, Charlie Thompson told me he never talked above a whisper. Charlie Thompson? He was a, a St. Louis, a later St. Louis ragtime figure that I knew. Uh, Charlie lived till 1965. And uh, let's see, what else can I tell you? How did St. Louis take to him and to his music? Uh, well, he's, all his tunes that he started to write in here that Stark published were successful, like The Entertainer. The Entertainer was not as big then as it became in the 70s, but it, it still was a big success. Most of his rags sold very well. Stark, you know, continued to publish. Mm -hmm. um, and by 1901, uh, Joplin was known as the king of ragtime writers. Arthur Marshall's told us that he, Joplin was very well understood among the public. That's what he felt about it. He was the king of ragtime writers. Um, why do you think he was more understood than the other ones? Was he more acceptable? Uh, well, I mean, un understood as... Did they take him? They took him seriously. But he, he, yeah. But why? Uh, well, I think one thing was simply this: he was successful. People loved the rags. Uh, they sold well in sheet music. Most of them were issued on piano rolls, which is a good barometer. If a major piano roll company issued the tune, it generally was one that showed good signs of sa good sales in sheet music. And. Uh, Joplin was very, you know, he was very much an exception to other, the other ragtime writers who approached ragtime more as a, as a simple type of entertainment music, whereas Joplin approached it as more of an art music. Yeah. Uh, are there, were there elements in St. Louis at that time that made, that affected the way the, the ragtime was developed? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think couple of things come to mind. There was a very strong, of course, a uh, Germanic music tradition in St. Louis very early. And I think this had an effect on Starks moving here and, and being successful with a more serious type of ragtime. I think this helped. I don't think he would have had the success had he gone to Chicago, which had more of a popular ragtime mm -hmm. style. The other thing is that the, the director of the St. Louis Choral Society, Alfred Ernst, I was quoted in a 1901 Post-Dispatch article. Uh, it's all about uh, how great Scott Joplin is, mm -hmm. and he was planning to take him to Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that that was the number one musician in St. Louis. Did he take him? We don't know. Uh, the passport records. I can't, I I written the passport. Obviously, the records are incomplete and. Uh, some of the records weren't kept, so it's really hard to say. Some of the members of the family claimed that Joplin did go to Europe. He came back home to Texarkana and talked about it, but we've just never been able to find any proof. Documented. Um, 
Was St. Louis, so St. Louis, would you say, was a good place for of course, of course, there we're was. Talking the 1900s. Yeah, of course, the, the opinions were. There was a there was a controversy on ragtime, about ragtime from the start, and it was about evenly divided again, for and against. Stark's big frustration is that most ragtime critics would rant and rave against the music and were totally unaware of the Stark, what he called the St. Louis article, it was a, a genu genuine creation of 20th century music. Some some words to that effect. Um, that a lot of a lot of critics weren't aware of what what was happening what here. What was really happening? Yeah, Which the, was the yeah. cradle of ragtime, supposedly. Yeah, um, a lot of them weren't aware of the Stark rags. A lot of a lot of musicians were um, aware that, that that Stark rags were all could be depended on to be higher quality for mm -hmm. uh, professional musicians. But I think as the general public, maybe not so much. There was they so called them Stark rags. They. Uh, I mean, he he published them. But yeah, they, but they were they they were called Stark rags. Yeah, I, I've heard that term uh, around St. Louis and talking to older people. Uh, one uh, one person I remember described. Uh, I said I'm looking. Somebody called me to look at some sheet music. See if I want to buy it. And it's a very elderly lady, and she said, "I said I'm looking for Stark rags." She said, "Oh no, I'm, this is not Stark rag. This is Dime Store rag time." She's talking about all oh, the other popular. How uh, interesting! Yeah, and he had a Stark had elite. a yeah, and Stark, but Stark was doomed. The smaller publishers were doomed as Tin Pan Alley uh, was driving the smaller publishers out of business. And he was constantly having price wars. And the Tin Pan Alley was constantly undercutting and selling music for a nickel and dime, and the legitimate price was fifty cents a sheet. He himself sold, I mean, and wholesale music out for less than that. But uh, he had a he had a struggle, and it finally, you know, the company finally went. Uh, by the time Stark died in '27, I don't. Stark hadn't taken any new imprints. He hadn't published anything new since '23. And when did? Well, let's hold on to the alley. I've got yeah. so many. I'm gonna, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, when we were talking about, was it a good place to develop ragtime? Mm -hmm. Can we separate the composing? To the playing, to the performing, is it was it a good time for all of that? A good place for all of that, or I think do we individualize? One of the keys here was Tom Turpin, and he established ragtime very early. And, um, there's there's a black newspaper called The Freeman in Indianapolis, and in 1912, there's an there's an article um, quoting. I'd see pulling the opinion of people at the time, like Burt Williams and prominent entertainers and musicians. Where did ragtimes originate? They said St. Louis. You can't really prove that ragtime originated any one place. It all was kind of blossoming at the same at, at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I think that the the Turpins and their their power as uh, pioneers in black entertainment here, they were pretty powerful. I mean. Charlie Turpin, in 1910, became elected as a constable. He was the first black man to hold citywide office. They were very important, and um, Tom was, uh, his main importance is uh, musical, but uh, Charles was important politically. They, they opened the Booker Washington Theater in 1913, which became a, a, a mecca for black entertainment in St. Louis. Uh, I think it's a number of factors. That made St. Louis an, you know, important center early. How, how did Joplin, uh, Joplin and Turpin, they did all right together? Uh, they didn't collaborate, but they were friends. Mm -hmm. uh, why was classic writing important to Joplin and, and not to to Chopin? Well. You mean uh, in terms of why Chopin? Uh, Chauvin, well, he was more folk rag. Well, no, Chauvin, Chauvin was just a brilliant. Chauvin. Yeah, I, I think that's what uh, Bern Campbell uh, called him, Chauvin. That's the way he pronounced the country flair. Um, he was a brilliant player, an innovator. Uh, they said he wrote a rag a day, just a just a brilliant musician, and he really didn't care about writing his tunes down or anything, and he just went his own way, and the, you know he and succumb to the deadly delights of the sporting life. That's Siobhan's story, really. Uh, 
Turpin only published six or seven tunes. Later on, he did arranging for the Booker Washington shows, and he, after about, well, you can't put a date on it, but he sort of disappears as a composer. His main uh, he, early stuff is, is the pioneering stuff that he did in like 1897. Harlem Rag was his, his first tune. It's the first black rag published in America. So his importance is really early. He's a pioneer to set the stage. Um, all right. Gather my When did when did uh, Rag come out of the saloons and into the parlors? I would say by 1900, Ragtime was a craze. Uh, there's there are songs published that you're like, I'm certainly living a ragtime life. Uh, ragtime was the, the word that was catching on. Every time St. Louis. Well, everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but St. Louis mainly. Yeah. Well, I, I would say 1900. I, some of the earliest published ragtime syncopation that's important, I think, is 1895. That's when you pinpoint uh, some of the first. And then the first rag compositions appear in 97. When did the, if you're talking, this is the early rag was black. Mm -hmm. um, when did the white? Well, that's where it really gets a, it's complicated. Max Hoffman was an arranger uh, who was who became part of the Tin Pan Alley setup. But apparently, the story is he was in Chicago in 1893 for the Chicago Exposition. Now Joplin, we know, was there with a band. W.C. Handy was there. This way before he became known. Ben Harney. Did you mention a year? 1893. Apparently, a lot of musicians were gathered there who would become famous later. And apparently, some of the earliest syncopations were heard there. Hoffman notated these and sent them to Whitmark, who he worked for, which was a major publisher in New York. And in this way, he became one of the early pioneer arrangers mm -hmm. to write it down. Uh, it, it's a complicated situation because it, it was it was hard for a, a black musician to write to most a lot of them didn't know how to notate music anyway. Mm -hmm. So it, a lot of the earliest ragtime is notated by white white arrangers. Mm -hmm. You know, but it does seem like it appeared as not. They didn't have a racial identity. That's what you're saying. Uh, Nor the desire to well, promote their music. Well, all the earliest covers depict. Well, you know about how how rampant racism was at this time in the country. Well, I want you to tell me some more about it, though. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. There, there were uh, the covers of most early ragtime always depict blacks in some form. Mm -hmm. In a minstrel Minstrel and stereotypes, uh, racial, yeah, all that stuff. It's pretty clear that the, you know, that the black heritage had a lot to do with this music. Mm -hmm. uh, even though some of the whites were the first ones to write it down. Within the ragtime field, there are those that feel that this is, that ragtime is much more, generally speaking, about white music than black. So you've got a lot of lot of tensions. Well, how do you feel? Because from your book, I'm picking up one thing from yeah, the I, book. I, yeah, I understand. Um, um, I think that uh, without the black heritage, without the black uh, ragtime, there would be a uh, much more barren feel. It would just be just a light entertainment uh, phenomenon that would, would be just a kind of a well, I can't say a footnote in American popular music, but it would be a lot less rich a heritage. And they put the depth and the feeling and I, the background I think so. and the heritage. There's nothing like Scott Joplin's ragtime. There's, uh, um, I don't, I don't hear the same depth in a lot of the other ragtime. And of course, Joplin uh, is more, was a more serious writer. As I said, a lot of other ragtime was was never meant to be. Mm -hmm. uh, an in-depth classic style of writing. Um, 
What did bring uh, both Stark and well, what did bring Stark here? Um, and what was it about St. Louis? Well, that's uh, what I was saying about the the uh, Germanic music tradition here. There were there were the Kunkel brothers who were serious music publishers here, and uh, there were others. The Schattinger was here. I'm sorry, we picked it. We we did that. Yeah, we talked about that. I apologize. Mm -hmm. um, was there what was the pull of the educational climate that uh, drew Joplin to concentrate more on? Teaching rather than playing the rosebud. Is okay. That well, the 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 idea here is that Joplin realized that uh, well, what he wanted to do was was to write music. So he had to get out of the sporting districts, and he made a point to set himself up as a music teacher and a composer. Mm -hmm. That's what he wanted to do. So he generally stayed out of that life. And then, what was it about St. Louis that Handy, who hadn't been here for what, 14 to 16 years, then wrote? St. Louis Blues? Yeah. Handy talks about coming here and he talks about Targi Street. Apparently, Targi was still going, uh, although most of the activity went a few blocks west of Union Station. I'm talking about the sporting districts. Uh, Handy was part of the the massive migrations of blacks northward. He came up in 93, he came here and stopped and on his way to Chicago. That's a lot of them did that. Um, I, I really don't know Handy's uh, history as well to know what, you know, when he was here or why, but uh, Targi Street was a focal point in early black music and it continued to be uh, until it went down when, when Keel went up in the 30s. Mm -hmm. You brought that to my attention. I hadn't heard that street. Yeah, there's, there's a little section of it left that runs south called Johnson Street. Mm -hmm. That's all that's left of it. Um, I have another one more in this uh, area. What circumstances in St. Louis created the atmosphere where Joplin would create the three of his most important, which is Maple Leaf, Cascades, and Sunflowers? Well, Maple Leaf was in Sedalia. Sedalia. Uh, that was originally in Sedalia. Uh, Joplin claimed he notated his first rags by 1897. Mm -hmm. The story is he took two of them, original rags and Maple Leaf, his first two, on a train to Kansas City, since Kansas City was much closer to Sedalia and there were publishers there. He, he looked up Carl Hoffman, who was publishing uh, a lot of popular things like marches and things, songs. And Hoffman looked over both manuscripts and he rejected Maple Leaf because it was, he said it was too difficult to play. So he bought original rags and it became a success for him, but of course he passed up the big one. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was, what, would the, what was the question again? I, I got what was it about, what was it about St. Louis, uh, what were the conditions that, um, it was the atmosphere where Joplin created his oh. three most important rags, or two most important Well, okay, so well, Sunflower is another Sedalia. Oh. Sunflower, Swipesie, and Ragtime Dance and Maple Leaf are the Sedalia pieces. Okay. Uh, supposedly one well, of the... Well, then those were his... Well, sun, okay. Sunflower Slow Drag, yeah, with uh, Scott Hayden, who was another mm -hmm. protege. Mm -hmm. Cascades is definitely St. Louis. That was written for the World's Fair. With the picture, the picture of the Cascades. Originally, the picture was Joplin with a crown as the King of Ragtime Riders. Uh, second cover was the Cascades Waterfall. Why did they change it? Uh, because that picture is on, on so much World's Fair memorabilia. It was the big focal point mm -hmm. of the fair. They, so they used to. They, they so it was natural. Yeah. All right. So people. Um, uh, they really didn't choose to stay here, you said, after the fair? No, the activity subsided. Chicago was, of course, a bigger city, and there was music, ragtime music activity up there from the very beginning. The first tunes published with rag titles were in Chicago. What happened to Targi Street and the Rosebud Cafe? The Rosebud, um, the Rosebud became, uh, let's see, Turpin owned a, 
opened a second place called Jazzland in the late teens. This is where Josephine Baker got her start. She was a waiter, and from I don't know where I remember reading this, they called her Goggle Eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she started working for the Turpin Brothers. The Booker T, I just found out recently opened in 1913. We finally found out a date on that. And I guess the Rosebud, I don't know when the Rosebud closed or if it ever did. Uh, the Jazzland address is a block west of the Rosebud. The Rosebud was 2222. Jazzland is listed in the directories as 2333. Booker T location, I'm still not positive where it was. It was on market near the Rosebud. You know so much, and you've gone into so much detail, and you've gone down there, I'm sure, and stood there and looked. And yeah. And do you sometimes, it's like a flashback, like maybe you lived, lived then? Yeah. And uh, w right before the headache ball took the rosebud down, I, I really had strong feelings about that area and what, what happened there. I can visualize mm -hmm. things. Uh, but it's really hard to tell anything about it today. I think we'd be yeah. living too long because it's so strong. Um, well, uh, do we go into the other joints, clubs, places in St. Louis that mm. might have been important at this time? There was an earlier theater called the Douglas Theatorium that's advertised in the Palladium, but I think that was the Booker T really took that audience away by 1913. Uh, as far as later places, there was some place that Charlie Thompson mentioned called the Chauffeur's Club that piano players used to gather, but that was later. Well, we can go later. We can go right up to 68. Yeah. Uh, these were the, the Rosebud was, as far as ragtime, mm -hmm. the Rosebud was the main, main thing, and the Booker T. Would you say that there's any social, political, economic statement or anything that ever came up through ragtime? That's a tough one. I don't know how to answer that. Well, in terms of maybe the slavery, the well, um, right time. Would you call it an up music? Yeah, generally, it's yeah, it's very positive, uh, joyous spirit about ragtime. Very positive. Uh, Maybe. John Stark mentioned, I, I use this in the paper, that uh, he had connected the, the spirit with an uh, effect gained by emancipation that uh, would express itself with a joyous spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, reaching out for... Somebody once described ragtime as... Uh, analyzed it as the right hand representing sort of revolutionary new ideas and the left hand the old order. This is kind of an interesting notion. Um, Joplin though made ragtime a more complex musical experience, much more so than uh, most of the other writers. He wasn't alone in that but he was he was mainly mainly the one who made it more complex emotionally. And, and could you say he refined it? Yes, he could, yeah. He brought in the, the, the European influence, very strong flavor, Joplin's music, European romanticism, very strong. Um, we've talked about racism a mm -hmm. little bit, but could we talk about that some more, please? Well, one of the early years of ragtime, uh, let's say 1896 comes to mind, was one of the that was the year of some of the most, some of the worst coon songs. That was the year of all coons look alike to me. Uh, a whole bunch of things in 1896, and that was one of the early years of ragtime. The covers speak for themselves. Uh, there was a uh, I call it a iconology of symbols. 
you know, of racism that were used on all the covers. And um, it seems that this, this whole aura of a racial exoticism fades away by 1910 or before, I'd say maybe by 1906. And you stop getting all these uh, references to blacks mm -hmm. on the covers. Uh, that's, that continues throughout the ragtime, you know, but it, it lessens by nine, at least by 1910. Did that have anything to do maybe with the more of the acceptance of, of whites to the black? Um, Ragtime players? Or wouldn't that have mattered in those days? Well... I mean, we were trying to get it, we're, tr we're talking about getting it out of the saloon and into the parlor. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, by see, by 1905 or 6, ragtime was established popular music. It was everybody's music, and it, it just, it, it wasn't such a strongly associated with some sort of 19th century uh, racial background anymore. All right. If, did you want to say something? No, but I mean that, that it's just a fact, uh, somebody brought this out, that the racial covers soul music. It's an unfortunate thing, but I mean, that's they, mm -hmm. the stereotypes persisted a long, long time on, on the sheet music covers. All right. Racism. Uh, how about segregation? How did that um, Well, uh, I mean, in terms of... Well, uh, for instance, a man like Stark, um, was he affected? How was he affected? He had a, he was unusual. He had a, a white publisher who was giving him royalties and, and um, well, able, was he was he accepted? Well, I think he was. There's nothing in the ledgers. I have three ledgers that have some of his writings in. Um, Stark was known uh, among, of course, black musicians all over the country as a, as a publisher who would publish black music, more so than, say, other publishers. Mm -hmm. um, How about a Turpin, Tom? Was he, did he have acceptance? Certainly. In, in white circles, given oh. the, given the uh, importance that he had? That's hard. To, that's hard to determine. He, his publisher was white, Robert De Young, who was somewhat of a civic leader. Um, um, I know that the, the, the Turpins were powerful in the black community, but beyond that, I really, I really can't say. Mm -hmm. uh, when people went to hear, no, did whites ever go to Rosebud? I yeah. That's um, that's one thing that you know we're all still wondering about is what, what, how, to what extent there was a white audience for this music. And I think it was, it was more extensive than we realized. The, this Chestnut Valley was the sporting district. It was a place to go for excitement. And I, I heard a first-hand story, well, not a first-hand, but it was somebody told a story about that their father told them about going down to the Rosebud. And he was white. Oh. So <laughs> we know Another thing Joe Jordan told us um, was that the Lemp brothers, the beer barons, mm -hmm. were were very uh, avid fans of that area. Now, who's this gentleman that told you? Uh, this is Joe Jordan, a ragtime composer, who was here and was part of the Rosebud mm -hmm. group. Joe Jordan lived a, a very involved life. He had like three careers or so. He he, he died uh, in Washington State when he was 89, so he was, he told us quite a bit. Um, what were the effects of classic rag outside of St. Louis? Well, the Stark catalog was known, you know, throughout the country. Um, and, of course, after Stark was in, in New York, uh, I think it, the Stark catalog was generally understood to be a high-quality ragtime house. After 1910, Stark called it the Classic Rag House, and that's, that's when that whole logo, that's when he used that term. I don't think he used it extensively before that. Mm -hmm. 
could could anybody but to start but uh, Jonathan make a uh, at that time make a living at ragtime? Most of the writers who made a living at it were um, well, a lot of the Tin Pan Alley writers who wrote rags, but they wrote all kinds of music, whatever was popular, what was necessary. Um, but they really had gone to Chicago. Most of them on to Chicago and then on to New York. Mm -hmm. That was the pattern, it seemed, mm -hmm. uh, in those days. Now, what do I have here? Henry Montevrochi's Moonshine Gardens. Enrica in Chestnut. Does that, that sounds like where Mar Arthur Marshall played, I think. Yeah, that's that's with Arthur Marshall's. So. The Eureka was supposedly someplace he played here that was owned by Turpin, I think at 22nd and Chestnut, it's blocked north of the Rosebud. Where, I don't know where I read this, who are the big three? The big three are considered to be Scott Joplin, James Scott, and Joseph Lamb. They're generally considered the top three ragtime writers. Writers. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we take the list there. Yeah. Uh, Tin Pan Alley. Yeah. When did it start? Well, Tin Pan Alley's uh, got into the game very early with the cakewalk. The cakewalk became the uh, popular dance craze in the 90s. And the guys in, in Tin Pan Alley uh, hopped on the bandwagon after the success of at a Georgia camp meeting by Carrie Mills, who was a popular cakewalk. And they... they cakewalk is just a dance? It's, it? Yeah, it was originally a slave dance. And it, uh, it gradually uh, worked its way into vaudeville. Was it ever here in St. Louis? It was all over. It was a popular dance. But it started somewhere else? Yeah, it started in the South Plantations. Mm -hmm. and. It, it was a competitive dance, and the, the winners were given a, a cake. That was the idea. Oh. As it developed in vaudeville in the 90s, it became highly costumed and a very intricate dance, and the cash cash was the prize by that time. Other than that, it was an informal social dance. It was just popular all over, and, uh, and even in Europe, the cakewalk craze invades Europe. That was a big mm -hmm. thing. Sousa, popularized some of the cakewalk tunes. Now the cakewalk tunes started to be written to accompany the dance. These and they're they're lightly syncopated marches. They're not as involved as piano ragtime pieces. Mm -hmm. But they help pave the way for ragtime. Alright now uh, one other I gotta go back okay. and ask my yeah. <laughs> back to St. Louis. Um was there a mic? When Scott Joplin came here and the Rose and everything was in its height, and was there a migration of of people that came here? There were there was kind of a steady migration of blacks northward. I think one of the important ones was in 1893, but I think it was fairly fairly steady out of the south. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some of these were musicians. Some of them stayed here. Most of them went on to Chicago. It was just better there. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, most of them. Uh, Congregated here in 1904. Right, but then that was yeah. That's what Arthur Marshall says. After that, it was. was but getting, getting back to the, the cakewalk became the first Tin Pan Alley commodity, mm -hmm. as this, this cakewalk sold in sheet music, and so you had guys in New York writing tunes with Georgia Echoes, Old Swanee, and all these places they never seen. Mm -hmm. So Tin Pan Alley came in. Their their formula, their form that they use was three strain form. And it's almost always uh, the basic structure is A, B, A, C, and then the B strain. Instead of writing a four strain, it's just a usual and classic rack. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a simpler type of music. And uh, after 1906, the Tin Pan Alley rag uh, was established. It was a simpler type of tune. And it was characterized by a, a, a melodic idea it became a cliche that's known as secondary rag or three over four. Uh, do you want me to demonstrate that? Yeah, can we unplug this and yeah. and then maybe you'll play a little. Can you play maple one? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're running.